Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. I'm Eric Garna, and I'm here in Washington, D.C. with Marty Blank, who is the president of the Institute for Educational Leadership and the director for the Coalition for Community Schools. So welcome, Marty. Good morning, Eric. I say welcome. It feels a little funny because we're sitting here in your office. So thanks for having me as well. It's our pleasure. Glad you could come. So, um, you know, I was just commenting that you have two titles. So maybe we could kind of start out with that. What's up with that? What's, what is the Institute for Educational Leadership and what is the Coalition for Community Schools? Well, the Institute for Educational Leadership is the home of the coalition. And the Institute is a nearly 50-year-old organization mm-hmm. formed in the early days of the um, emergence of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act when our nation was first beginning to recognize a federal role mm-hmm. in the education of all our children. And IEL was organized um, with support from the Ford Foundation to help bring to Washington a new um, group of people who rep- reflected the experience, had, had experience in the field and could help Washington begin to implement um, that new responsibility. Mm-hmm. So we did that program for about 17 years. Um, as do many things, uh, the world changed. Mm-hmm. And we now still run that program, actually, called the Education Policy Fellowship Program, um, in 13 um, states across the country. And it's a, it's a vehicle for helping mid-career folks improve their policy know-how, their leadership skills, and their networking capacity. So we think you know, those three things, policy, leadership, and networking, are really crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that work, the Institute today um, has a significant body of work focused on youth development with a particular emphasis on young people um, with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so we've done a substantial amount of work with the Department of Labor and some work with the Department of Education to create a framework f- to help young people with transition because um, we think that the processes for transition are really not well defined and well articulated. Um, GAO did a report on this um, a few months back and they highlighted the guideposts for success that the Institute had developed um, through its Center for Workforce Development. And those guideposts actually reflect many of the attributes or characteristics of what we think needs to happen in a community school. Mm -hmm. So we need young people to have strong learning opportunities. They need to be connected to their communities. Their families need to be involved. Um, All of those things need to happen in in a systematic and structured way in order for folks to succeed. And uh, in addition to the, so so the institute is is today an organization um, that is still really focused on leadership. Um, in addition to that education policy fellowship program, we now have a network of leaders um, who are doing family engagement in school districts all around the country because mm-hmm. we, we believe strongly that families have been lost, um, left out, if you will, um, from the conversation about education reform. And we, so we've brought together the people in local communities who are um, trying to build more systemic family engagement efforts. We've been working with Karen Mapp. Um, who's on our board in that regard. And then finally in the leadership arena, we're really very concerned that uh, much of the leadership work that's gone on in the past um, dozen years has not had sufficient focus on equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are constructing a leadership program 
um, through networks with higher eds and some local school districts that will have a stronger equity focus that will help principals lead in disadvantaged, um, disinvested neighborhoods and communities and grapple with the multiple factors that influence those young people, be better able to engage families, be better engaged, be better able to engage communities. So that's a, a piece of our work going forward that we think is, uh, is very significant. And you mentioned um, transition. And how do you define that? What, what, what do you mean by transition, helping young people with transition? Well, you know, there are many points in a young person's life when there are important transitions. I yeah. mean, you could say that being born is an important transition. It was but the ones we think about a lot are, you know, the transition from into public school. Mm-hmm. Now, for some young people, that's from home into public school because we still have a a fairly fragmented and inadequate early childhood system. But for others, it's from Head Start or pre-K into a public school. Mm -hmm. There's an important transition from elementary to middle school. There's a Mm -hmm. crucial transition period uh, when young people enter high school. We all know that ninth grade success is crucial. Um, And, of course, the the bridge between um, high school and post-secondary activities. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that you have to look in particular at how you support young people to think through uh, what they need and what parents and other organizations, other professionals, other people in their lives need to offer them in order to help them um, work through that transition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we're, you know, again, this framework that I mentioned, the guideposts for success which if someone Googles it, they'll, it'll quickly pop up, um, reflects the need for families, the community, the school um, to be engaged, for young people to have learning experiences outside school. This is particularly important for, um, for the disabled population, um, which is, you know, um, talk about left behind, um, despite all of our progress, and it has been quite extraordinary over the last, uh, since ADA and, and since and before that, we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the Institute, through our work at the Coalition for Community Schools, has also been interested in the transitions between um, early childhood and public schools because that gap, even, although there's been more work on it, um, remains um, pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have a school system running a pre-K facility and the pre-K teachers and the kindergarten teachers aren't interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. So we've worked on that um, in a project we did uh, with support from the Kellogg Foundation called the Early Childhood and Community Schools Linkages Project, um, which endeavored to build connections between providers and organizations in the early childhood system and people doing, uh, doing community schools work. And we felt that our community schools framework provided a particularly good vehicle for this because we are trying to engage um, a set of opportunities and supports that will deal with, uh, deal with the whole child, mm-hmm. which is more akin to what is happening in um, in local communities. And now we have some community schools where they are beginning to use the school as a hub for learning and professional development for all the early childhood providers around the school. Mm-hmm. Including uh, private including, providers Including well? private, including family, friend, and neighbor care, mm-hmm. home-based care, mm-hmm. because those folks really have very few, very little network. So if we can bring them all together right. – um, particularly at a community school, in this case it's happening in Cincinnati, then they can um, they can get professional development, but their children also may be able to get access to health services and other supports that they need. 
Now, is there a tendency when that happens for even those sort of small mom-and-pop providers to um, need to get more in line with um, Common Core and kindergarten readiness and all of that when they would have maybe in the past been providing sort of a play-oriented you know, daycare environment? I think what we're hoping will happen is that the quality of their assistance to, to children and their families will increase. Um, you know, that we have a very um, – my spouse does a lot of work in this field, so she should really be here to tell you this story. But we have a raggedy system. So yeah. you have a, a family friend, a neighbor uh, provider who's caring for three children. And um, they have various, varying levels of sophistication. So I think what we want to do is take them from where they are and help them learn. Whether that looks like the common core or not, I'm not so sure because I'm not an early childhood specialist. But it is to grow their capacity, but it is from our point of view to help them deal with the academic, social, emotional, behavioral issues around early childhood. Because mm-hmm. we are um, deeply concerned that there are I don't have the precise data, but we still see um, boys of color being suspended from pre-K or suspended from kindergarten. Yeah. So, Eric, but let me come. Let me bring you back to another first question you asked for a moment, because mm-hmm. we started by my talking a little bit about the Institute for Educational Leadership, uh, which is about to be fifty years old. Congratulations! And we're, we're pretty darn proud about that, especially yeah. in a world where. Sometimes it seems like the only good thing – some people think the only good things out there are brand new things. Right. Um, So we think that that people who look at history and think about what has happened in the past and what it means for the future, that kind of thinking is really important. So the Institute – so I run both organizations. So the Institute, as part of its um, sort of DNA, is a convener of like-minded people who want to solve problems. Mm Mm-hmm. So we became the convener of the Coalition for Community Schools, working uh, with leadership that was very interested in this, people at the Children's Aid Society, Phil Koltoff and Pete Moses at the time, mm-hmm. um, Ira Harkavy, who was the vice, pres- vice president at Penn and the director of the Netter Center for, for Community Partnerships at the university, and Joy, Joy Dreyfus, mm-hmm. who wrote a great deal about um, disadvantaged children and adolescent development. We lost Joy a couple of years ago, and she still is a uh, someone who, um, who who drives our work mm-hmm. with the vision and the passion she brought to it. When I not to interrupt, but when I interviewed Jane Quinn from Children's Aid Society, um, it was shortly after Joy had passed away, and I had dedicated that that episode to, to Joy Dreyfus. So I didn't get to meet, but I got to enjoy her her writing quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Well, well, Joy was very feisty and demanding. Um, she she would not necessarily like all these new frameworks that everyone has mm-hmm. out here today. She'd want to know whether she'd want to know whether you'd gotten a health clinic in that school because she knew there were children who needed health services to be able to do better. Yeah, so she's very the work, very not just talking practical about the work. Yeah. and focused on getting stuff done. Yeah, and of course Good we try her. to find a balance. Yeah. So the so so creating uh, something like the coalition was really. Um, a core part of the way IEL does its work, mm-hmm. bringing people together, building a common vision, talking about results, and implementing a strategy. In this case, um, our allies decided that the coalition was actually a pretty good home for the coalition. And so rather than setting up the, the a— institute was a The institute would the be coalition. a good home. Yeah. That's right. So rather than setting up a brand-new C3— 
the Institute became the home, home of the coalition. And we mm-hmm. now have a steering committee um, originally chaired by uh, Ira Harkavy at Penn, as I mentioned him earlier, but now chaired by Lisa Villarreal, who is the senior uh, education program officer at the uh, San Francisco Foundation, and including people um, who are leaders in the field, like Jane Quinn, Dan Cardinale from Communities and Schools, um, partners representing the NEA, the AFT, uh, the secondary school principals, uh, the administrators, as well as people at the state and local level who are doing the work. So we've tried to create a network of leaders um, who can really learn from each other and can help to move the agenda forward. So IEL has done that, and it did that with the coalition. Um, I was the director of the coalition before I became president of IEL, and now I try to uh, balance my time, if you will, um, with jobs that, as you can quickly imagine, uh, probably each uh, require full time. Sure. And if you could just sort of summarize, what is a community school? We've talked about them before on Please Speak Freely, but we may indeed have listeners who don't really know. And and many people, when they hear the, the, the term, I think that they think that it's equivalent to a neighborhood school, and they don't realize sort of the full complexity of what community the community school movement is really about. So – so we talk about a community school as a place, i.e. A, a physical place, that is a school, and a set of partnerships. So if you think about all the needs that young people have as they develop, their academic needs certainly, their physical and health needs, their needs for family support, um, their needs for social and emotional development, the need to grow them as contributing members of society. From a community school standpoint, the public school per se, and or charter schools for that matter, are not resourced to do all those things. And so a community school is a place where we bring together the school and all the many other partners in the community who are also deeply concerned about better outcomes for young people. Mm-hmm to try to focus on those results in a strategic way. So um, we're not talking about a school that looks like a Christmas tree where you just hang ornaments willy-nilly mm-hmm. or you have partners that don't even meet or talk to each other. I once had a s- assistant principal from an Oakland high school um, tell me that he, had, he was r- responsible for all the partners when he took on his job and somebody would come in and ask for a room or a chalkboard or a, um, to print some materials. And he finally was, got so tired of all this that he had a meeting and he called it the who are you and why the hell are you here meeting. <laughs> because what we want in a community school is for those partners to be on the same page, mm-hmm. to agree on a set of results that they want, to look at data together, and then do work that moves the school school, its students, its families, and to the extent that it is a neighborhood school, the neighborhood forward. Now, community school, in many cases, they are still neighborhood schools. Even though some kids may come from other parts of town, um, many schools still have 50, 60, 70 percent of their students coming from particular neighborhoods. Sure. But the question for us is, what do kids need to grow and develop? And we believe they need all of these opportunities. Um, and all this support. And so that's what we're trying to do at a community school. Now, there's a way, you know, we know how to do this. We know how to organize ourselves to make this happen. And at the school site, there's really three or four, you know, sort of infrastructure elements that that can make this happen. Um, One is uh, 
you need you need somebody to leverage and coordinate the resources of the community. You know, when the secretary, when Secretary Duncan was in Chicago, he said that he was leveraging one dollar of school resources to every six or seven from the community. Mm-hmm. Just think about it. Health organizations, youth organizations, higher education institutions. There's lots of people and resources out there. But some, it's, a, it's a job. If I said to you I can leverage $700,000 and I was going to put that responsibility on the principal, you would naturally respond and say, well, I thought principals were supposed to focus on instruction. Well, I, we have a larger vision for what they should be doing, and you know, we can talk about that a little bit later. But the fact is you need somebody whose job it is to make sense of the role of the partners. And so we want somebody who can do that, number one. Number two, uh, we always encourage people to go to places where they're supportive principals. Regrettably, most principals don't le- learn very much about working with families, and they earn, learn even less about working with the community in their preparation programs. Mm-hmm. And so we are looking for pe- men and women who want to do this whether it's because of their personal inclination to be externally oriented, Mm -hmm. whether it's because they see the problems that walk in the schoolhouse door every day, um, from hunger to homelessness um, to health problems, um, and you name it. Um, We we think that that starting with a supportive person is the right way to go. And so that's a key ingredient, because if you start with somebody who doesn't really want you there, it's not going to work. And gradually what we've seen in a place like Portland, Oregon, for example, they started with eight. And by the time the first year was over, principals were clamoring to be a Sun Community School. Mm-hmm. It's a great name. It's, it's Schools Uniting Neighborhoods. That's mm-hmm. a good name. Um, they, why were they clamoring? Because they saw real support being given to the schools. Right. So we need a community school coordinator. We need a strong a supportive principal. We also need a place where all those partners – will come together and think about why they're there. You know, we don't want schools that where you have to ask who are you and why are you here. We want schools where partners sit with the principal, sit with teachers, sit with families and say, what's going on and how are we working together? How are we in today's parlance aligning our resources toward a set of common results? If we have a chronic absence problem, are we organized to address it? If we have a family engagement problem, how are we going? What new things and different things are we going to do? And how are we going to track what it is that's happening in that field? Mm-hmm. So those are um, the, the site team, the coordinator, the supportive principal, and this focus on results are among the sort of the key elements that we, that we describe. Let me just give you one other way to think about a community school that we've, we've come up in, with in the last year. Um, so everyone in our audience today, um, I suspect – perhaps with a few exceptions, um, is sitting there listening to this either on their smartphone mm-hmm. or with a smartphone in their hands. Right. Right? So think about a community school as a smartphone where students and teachers and families can access all of the opportunities, think apps, that they might need. So that's how we think about a community school. Mm-hmm. We have eight apps in our community schools. We have an engaged instruction app. Because community schools are not only about health and social supports and after school and family engagement. We believe the community has a crucial role to play in making learning more exciting, Mm -hmm. in connecting young people to the real world. So higher education institutions, business partners, museums, performing arts groups, 
environmental organizations, all can bring expertise and resources to the school that will strengthen curriculum and engage young people. We have an expanded learning app, which covers after school, um, intercessions, summer, and so forth. We have a health and social supports app, a family engagement app, a community engagement app, a youth development app. We have schools where young people are doing peer, peer mediation, conflict resolution kinds of activities. Um, we have an, our early childhood app. I talked earlier about that early childhood connection. And finally, we have a college career and citizenship app. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the framework we've developed. We don't dictate to people what apps they think are most important in their community. They make, the, make that decision. But those apps are driven by an underlying infrastructure, by and, strategic alignment. And I spoke about some of those elements a little bit a bit ago. And that, that last comment you made about we don't dictate – you know what each community does sort of gets to what I what I wanted to ask you about next. There's there's always a lot of talk um, about in in education and human services in general about replicable models and replication, and um, it seems to me like some of the most um, successful or at least the most uh, publicly acknowledged uh, models of quote education reform right now are ones that really look to replicate a model in many different places across the country. So it may be a particular model of charter school, right? Um, it may be other models that where they say, we know how to do this, we have the manual, and we can adapt it to each community, but it's basically the same uh, model being replicated. And what you're describing is something that's highly con- highly contextual, right? That has that's to right. be really driven by local stakeholders, driven by local leaders, driven by local needs. Um, and the the coalition is called the coalition, um, I assume, because it's meant to be, as you said, uh, an association of like-minded organizations and individuals, but not people necessarily all doing the exact same thing. It's not a franchise, right? That's correct. So I'm, I'm just wondering, how does that sort of movement building, which you're involved with, how does that sort of um, intersect with this replication this push for a replication. So I don't think those two concepts are necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you wanted to do a, a program around expanded learning, you would want to implement the highest quality program. So you would look at evidence-based models and integrate them into the community school. But in our, from our point of view, the model itself might not be the only thing that would happen because typically there are multiple things happening in a school that may all be evidence-based, but we think there's something in the synergy among those things that is important. It's like a black box. Um, you, you may have read the recent story about the Mediterranean diet. Gina Collada in the, in the New York Times wrote a piece in which she said, the Mediterranean diet, diet is kind of like a black box. You don't know which particular mm-hmm. um, item of food is giving you the payoff. Mm-hmm. So you put them together in a way that sounds rational and intelligent. Okay. So what we are saying in a community school is we don't really know what it took to get you, since you're sitting in front of me, to where you are today. Was it your academic ability and was it that great teacher? Was it the experience you had in an art or music program or mm-hmm. on the ball field somewhere? 
Was it um, a health or mental health need that you may have had along the way that got addressed? Was it a mentor? So we believe that um, disadvantaged children need a multiple sets of opportunities. And we should do the very best. If we're going to get a mentor for a kid, that person should be trained according to the best information we have about mentoring. Um, if we're going to do a, um, a health clinic, we should run it at the highest standard. But we shouldn't stop us. That shouldn't be all we do. We have to aggregate um, the social capital of our communities around our young people. Uh, one way I often talk about this is to say that the challenge many of our poor kids face is isolation. I was a VISTA volunteer a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, actually about the time IEL was <laughs> getting started. And I was a, a VISTA volunteer in the boot heel of Missouri, which some of your listeners may know, sort of sits right in the corner of northeast Arkansas, just north of Memphis. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, people would say that the children who lived less than a mile from the Mississippi River had never seen the river. Mm-hmm. Today in Washington, D.C., people will tell you that 10 and 11-year-olds have never been down to the mall who live in Anacostia. Yeah. So what, what we are trying to do is, is wrap around our young people, not just services, but wrap the community around them and give them an, a, a comprehensive set of opportunities that are consistent with what I or any middle-class parent would do for their children, right? No one else asks. You know, I understand we're making public investments. We have to be very careful. We want to invest in quality. don't want people to misunderstand me. But I also think we have to think about this from, the, from a values perspective and, and work our best to ensure that the range of opportunities are available because often the evidence-based programming can't be scaled up because Why? it costs too much. Mm-hmm. Now, but in every community, there are resources doing some of these things mm-hmm. that will help us catch children in need. So let me give you an example in Cincinnati um, of what I think is a, is a stellar um, picture of what we're trying to accomplish. Cincinnati now has um, 34 community learning centers. Um, they use that term um, instead of the term community schools. Um, again, we, if people like that term better, we're okay with that. Right. Um, one of their schools, um, if, re- if your uh, listeners would like, they can go and look at Marketplace because um, Amy Scott from Marketplace has been doing a, um, a series on the Euler Community Learning Center. So this, this uh, school was reorganized um, about uh, 10 years ago when they were planning to build a new school. And the community asked that it be a K-12 school because – Lots of their kids, when they left eighth grade, were going to a big comprehensive high school and never finishing. Mm-hmm. It was an urban Appalachian population, and they brought the culture of Appalachia into the urban community, thus urban Appalachia. The school system responded. They now have a K-12 school. They now have a health clinic, an eye clinic, a dental clinic, after-school programs, business partnerships, mentors, and a network of organizations helping to support those young people. Each of those individual organizations are doing the highest quality of program, programming they can. But by virtue of creating that network of support and that network of opportunity, um, we believe they're reaching many more children. We know they're reaching many more children because Oriole's graduation rates have soared. And we also believe that they're helping teachers teach. They're taking a lot of the burden off of teachers, and they're also giving, also giving teachers a sense 
that they are working in a place where everyone really cares about young people. Mm -hmm. So I believe that community schools um, should align and integrate evidence-based programming. But ultimately, the crucial question is, will our, our communities take responsibility for the success of their children? Mm -hmm. And people do that. Institutions do that. Programs are only one part of that. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned a couple of times that community schools have a primary focus on serving economically poor, disadvantaged young people and families, yeah? But you've also talked about how the idea is that the, the quality of services, they get the same range of supports as, as anyone in any middle class or, or wealthier family or community would want to have for their, for their kids or would, does provide their kids. And I'm wondering, has there been any community that has focused on having community schools with the range of services and supports that you've already mentioned across the board regardless of income bracket? So what I'm envisioning is, you know, a, a, I'm from Oakland, California, and you mentioned Oakland earlier, and I recently got to interview Tony Smith from Oakland. Mm -hmm. um, what if citywide in Oakland, in the upper middle class and wealthier neighborhoods, which there are in Oakland, and in the economically poor and in the middle class, there was the same, everyone was doing the same thing. If you needed to go to the eye doctor, you went to the community school. If you needed to get mental health support, you went to the community school, as opposed to these two systems even if it's a really high-quality system for poor kids, it's a very different system right. from the um, you know, overwhelming choices that people with more money have when they want to so, get so that's for a really kids. that's a challenging question. So let me, let me clarify one point. We think the proposition is universal. Mm -hmm. um, so the, um, a colleague once told me, for example, that uh, it comes to family engagement, right? There's a family engagement problem in, a bar in the barrio in South Tucson, Arizona, and there's a family engagement problem in Santa Monica, mm -hmm. right? It's just a different kind of family engagement. Was that Paul problem. Heckman who said that? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I caught the reference. Okay, very good, <laughs> very good. Um, yeah, Paul is a good friend of ours. Um, and uh, I've also did, interviewed him. For the did some podcast. terrific work in, uh, um, in South Tucson. Yeah. So it's a universal proposition. You know, some people talk these days about this concept of targeted universalism, right? So you have an idea that you believe is universal, then you have to figure out where you start. Mm. And so, you know, if, if you've got lots of kids in need, where do you put your resources? Um, and often sort of public and private resources are dedicated to children of in particular population groups. So that naturally does lead you to those who are in greatest need. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, um, we've not focused only on schools that have the lowest level of socioeconomic status. So, for example, when you, if you're going to be political, um, you know, when Richard Murphy, who, who we lost recently and we both remember so fondly, when he first started the Beacon Schools in New York, he put one in every councilmanic district, right. right? Because even though some of those districts might have been better off than others, he wanted everybody to have a stake. When the community schools work started in Portland, they have five county commissioners. Mm -hmm. So now you could argue that most of the need was in the inner city of Portland, although you know the suburbs have changed all across America. Mm -hmm. So you have children in poverty in those places. But they, they made sure that there was at least one Sun Community School in every part of the county. 
And so that means that may mean serving children who aren't the, the very poorest, but it, it helps build um, political support for what you're for what you are trying to do. Um, so this is a you know this is a vexing question, um, but in principle we think this is a universal approach. Um, kids in middle class and upper middle class neighborhoods need social and emotional support. Um, they need other kinds of opportunities as well, but we need to focus most on those who are you know who are furthest behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question for me. I mean, I, I think it's, it gets to some pretty deep values that can go counter to sort of American culture in some ways. When when well, when you we know, the great the, the great quote on this is like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Jeff Canada's story about you know do do um, middle class and upper middle class people ask whether violin lessons contribute to academic achievement. Right. We've had people in the health field ask whether a kid being healthy contributes to academic achievement. Well, it sure as hell contributes to their being in attendance. Right. And it sure as hell cuts down emergency room visits and makes their life more stable. And you, you could argue we sh- we just, that's enough. We don't have to answer whether it's linked to academic achievement. But by and large, you know, the kids who are healthier do better. We have evidence from sure. California that shows that kids who are physically well, um, do better in school. So we, we apply a very different logic to our thinking about low-income kids. Yeah. And a community school framework tries to argue for a more normative approach mm-hmm. that we should try to do for all children what many families are able to do for their own and that the families who are unable to do it are just families facing a, a brutal economy. Right. A brutal economy. I mean, you know, you, um, I can't remember the number, but there's a new documentary about hunger, um, food, food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we hear community schools talk about all this, this all the time. The bus driver dropping off the, the kids who has the power bars in his pocket and hands them to kids. Mm-hmm. The backpacks going home on the weekend. Teachers worrying about their children on um, just before vacations. Because they're worried about whether they get fed. Yeah, I mean the the teacher of the year, um, the national teacher of the year is from Burbank. I can't recall her name. Said you know, and Burbank is not exactly a poor community. We've got children with a host of challenges that we as a school are, and we as teachers are not equipped to address, and we as teachers are not expected to address. We're expected to focus on this narrow slice, and frankly. Um, we haven't made enough progress with the narrow frame of public education reform that's been dr- driving us for the last 10 years to stay with it. We need the kind of um, more comprehensive strategic approach that is that is embedded in community schools and is driven by a sense of responsibility and partnership with all these other institutions. And many folks who are driving that, that ed reform agenda, um, you know, they they were sort of dubbed the no excuses crew, right? And the idea behind that is that poverty is no excuse. Um, it seems to me like that's as close as we've come to even having a real serious conversation about poverty in this country for some time. And there are plenty of people who are trying to drive that conversation. But on the level of the Department of Education and the way that schools are talked about and um, sort of the, the funders and billionaires and others who are behind current education reform efforts, there seems to be very little um, complex conversation about poverty. And it seems like that is what you're talking about. I mean, this, 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 this narrow focus on um, this very specific definition of, of success seems to me to be a distraction from 
ways that we're actually failing in a much larger sense as a country. Well, you know, we, I think I, I would agree with that. The, and I also believe that Americans are smart enough to keep two ideas in their heads at the same time. Mm-hmm. One idea, all kids can learn. We should focus on the highest quality learning experience for young people, right? Now, whether what we've been doing in the classroom is exactly right is a separate question. Mm-hmm. But we can keep our focus on learning for young people, and we can say, what other forces and factors in their lives are influencing their learning? Because you've interviewed Hetty Chang, right? No. Okay. So Hetty Chang works. I'm sorry. I thought you might have. Um, does, does chronic absence, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what we have discovered over the past five years is that a lot of the babies aren't in the school and a lot of the big kids aren't in school. So you improve the math and science curriculum in the high school and then only sixty. And then it turns out that only sixty-five percent of the kids are coming every day, which means that that an equal percentage are chronically absent. So what what good is the better curriculum unless you're getting the kids in school? So all of these things have to be seen in a more. We have to integrate what we know. We have to stop thinking narrowly about a single solution, and see things holistically. So in the 1930s, we had a wonderful demographer here at IEL named Bud Hodgkinson, and he pulled out a quote from the 1930s White House Conference on Children and Youth. Mm-hmm. We used to do those conferences regularly in this country. I think in part we may have stopped them because one of the things they do illuminate is the poverty that our young people experience. Right. That may be not the only reason, but we did. So what Bud quote? there's a wonderful quote there. The teacher sees this child as getting their math right. The recreation director sees them as a right-handed fastballer. The health person sees them as needing their immunizations and on to different specialties. No one sees the child. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying is it all matters. And when I raised my daughters, I didn't say, now, what is the evidence-based activity that's going to make them work? Right. Make them successful. I right. said I need to afford them a range of opportunities. And we think that we, we can do better by organizing the community. Now, I don't want to be heard to say that there are, there are sufficient resources to get all this done because we're sitting here three days after the sequester with funding for Head Start and uh, um, after-school programs and other supports for children being reduced. Yeah. But I'm a more and better guy. We need to invest more strategically, and we need to invest in ways that give people incentives that drive them to work together. Right? So from our point of view, you have to have collective action to get to collective impact. And, and required for collective action is collective trust, and we're missing a lot of trust in our society mm-hmm. these days. You're, you're working at a very large scale right now with this broad coalition, with this national work. But you mentioned you started your work as a VISTA volunteer, and I'd never heard the, the term boot heel. Go uh, look at the map, so and you'll I, know, I you'll know figured, precisely what I mean. I, I, I took notes. So I had actually wanted to ask you about that even before you mentioned it. And I'm just wondering, how did that experience as a VISTA volunteer working in um, – very poor communities, I assume, in Missouri. How did that um, set you on your path, or how does it inform your work? I was thinking about that before we uh, started this conversation. Um, 
because I met some amazing people there. Um, Robbie Towns um, who uh, and her husband Gus, they were sharecroppers and they were cotton pickers and they managed somehow to raise their children. Robbie became a board member of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. David Humes, who became the mayor of Haytai Heights, Missouri. Haytai was the other side of the tracks in, mm. in, in, in that town. Um, and so it got like, and this is the South, by the way. People should not, this is a, a, a part of the country where if you picked it up and flipped it into Mississippi at the time, and even now, you wouldn't be able to say, see much difference. Mm-hmm. So those people all had great hope and saw great possibility. They'd lived um, really, really tough and challenging lives. I mean, my father is an illegal, was an illegal immigrant to this country, so I have some experience from his coming here from, uh, from Romania many, many, many years ago. He's gone now. But so their sense of possibility, their sense of um, hope, and the reality that they showed me the discrimination that was rampant then, the lack of job opportunities, the inadequacy of the schools, um, still is around for me today. And I wonder what they would think about all these frameworks that we've constructed and all this data-driven work. You know, the data is really important, but it's the, it's the collective action that's crucial to get to the data. And the data has to drive us. It's got to be um, our values have to drive us to improve the data we see. Sometimes I, um, and some of my colleagues may criticize me for saying this, but I think sometimes people think data by itself is going to be the solution. Mm -hmm. It's a tool for communities who come together. And, you know, what we had in the boot heel was high levels of poverty, high levels of discrimination. And so I carry that with me in a very very important way, and it actually led me to know the first black woman who was chosen as Miss America because I knew her mother in <laughs> Kennett, Missouri, That's funny. many years ago. Yeah. yeah, very interesting set of of experiences that uh, have really in, informed and and fueled in many many different ways. Um, you know what we are trying to do today. And you may have already covered this in just explaining your work, but you know that was that was in 1965. That you it were, was. So that was. Uh, f- Coming on 50 years ago. It was the beginning of the War on Poverty, yeah, which was legislation, the Economic Opportunity Act, which some of your listeners may not remember, yeah. um, was passed in 1964, and we were in the field in 65, which is right after I graduated from college. So we were very early adapters, if you will, of this yeah. notion of a domestic Peace Corps. But what, what has kept you going, working on, this, on these issues this whole time? You know... I've been able, to be honest with you, I've made an acceptable living, and I have felt that it's, it's just a, a sense of responsibility that got woven into me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard to sort of pinpoint that, right? I mean, I, I spent my days um, as a kid um, with my father. He owned a stand. He ran a stand on North Street in Boston in the old meat market. Mm-hmm. It's right across from Faneuil Hall. I used to sneak up the back of Durgan Park. Um, so I, you know, I, I learned that work was very important early. And I saw you know, people came down there from the poor parts of town, from the suburbs, and from Harvard. 
So I saw a very different group of people, and I wasn't sure about what I did, and I wound up in Missouri. And so it seemed to me that this was, you know, this is how I should spend my life. And, you know, luckily uh, I married a woman who, who cares too, and sometimes we think we've, we've got these two daughters who are um, doing similar stuff. One in, one in New York is a social worker in a charter school, and another one makes videos, uh, and she lives in South Africa. So they're sort of carrying on the social justice. We try. We try. You know, I think, uh, you know, social justice is uh, some, if you listen to some people, it's a bad word now. Yeah. It implies socialism. Yeah. Um, You know, I think justice is something that the the Bible tells us we should pursue. And in my small way, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, And I think that the only way we get there is by working together. You know, um, it's been very interesting um, as I've thought about, as I watch work around the country, everyone wants to think about their work as a movement these days, right? People will say the mentoring movement, the yeah. after-school movement. Yeah, yeah. We say the community schools movement. Yeah. That's not, the, you know, and everybody talks about education as a civil right. Well, the civil rights movement was truly a movement. Mm-hmm. People from all walks of life, across all classes and all races and all institutions working together. Mm -hmm. And that's from a vision standpoint, and I realize it sounds perhaps uh, over the top perhaps a little bit, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to gather everyone who has a stake in better outcomes for kids and get them engaged with our public schools and our public school children. And we think that that's crucial to their success. And it's not that other people don't think it, right? The business community is doing STEM partnerships all over the place. But schools, Secretary Duncan said on the Education Nation, partnership capacity in schools is a big challenge. We think we have solutions to that. So if you look at all the problems policymakers are worried about, attendance, it's not just a school problem. You're not just going to send an attendance officer out there and solve the problem. Go through the litany of challenges. And you'll see the need for these kinds of deep and intentional and purposeful partnerships between schools and their communities. Well, Marty, uh, congratulations on the 50, almost 50 years of IEL and um, almost 50 years of your own work in, in social justice and education and working for and with communities. And thanks for being on Please Speak Freely. It's been a real pleasure, Eric. Thanks for giving me the chance.